In our previous lesson, we were introduced to the eternal Lagos. He from the beginning created all things, but he himself is uncreated. Given the fall of Adam into sin, by God's grace, he would come into the world and become man, and he would do so for us and for our salvation. In this way, he emptied himself in an act of humiliation. This emptying, however, as we said last time, was by addition, not subtraction. The divine Lagos lost no divine attributes when he related to creation, particularly in the Incarnation. In other words, the flesh that he took on in no way altered the divine person of the Lagos. The divine person does not become something other than what he was before at the Incarnation. A human nature was added to the divine person without any change occurring to the person. It is true, a new relation obtained between the person of the Son and the creature at the Incarnation. It is true that in the Incarnation, the human nature of Christ changes, but the person of the Son Himself never changes. It did not change, and it never will change. That is because quite prior to and subsequent to the Incarnation, the person of Christ is always and only the person of the Eternal Son, the Eternal Lagos. And the Eternal Lagos is only and always divine in nature. He never becomes something other than what He always was. In the Incarnation, Jesus Christ has two natures in one person. And that person is no hybrid of natures. It's not as if the human and divine natures somehow came together to form a new third thing. At the Incarnation, the humility of Christ, humanity of Christ, was without personhood. But in the Incarnation, the personhood of Jesus Christ is provided by and in the divine person of the Son. Therefore, in the Incarnation, the person of the Son cannot change, and we say that categorically so. And that is because the person of Christ is God, and always will be God, and God cannot change. Therefore, the Son cannot change, either before, in, or after the Incarnation. To put it technically, the Lagos Asarkos and the Lagos Insarkos are equally and identically immutable. Also, in John's prologue, he introduced another character in the story. In the prologue, we are told about a man who was sent by God. His mission was to bear witness to the light. Not the sun, not a candlestick in the temple or man's enlightened ideas. No, he witnesses to the true light, the light from heaven, that light that comes down to illumine sinners in redemptive grace. Now, this witness to the light, his name is John, and he is not to be confused with the light itself. No, John is only a pointer 
He comes after the light who is the eternal Logos and who had always existed before John. This points up once again the importance of understanding the primal origin of the Logos. The eternal Son always existed before John because why? And we know this because we know that he created John because he created all things. John the Baptist puts it this way in verse 30 of chapter 1. He ranks before me because he was before me. He is the object of John's witness precisely because he is John's Lord and John's God. So verse 19 is where the body of the gospel begins in earnest. Here the gospel writer returns to John the Baptist and he describes for us his ministry. And the first thing we see about his ministry is that he has come to testify. The priests and the Levites corner John. Now, as an aside, these priests and these Levites will factor large in our story. They will be the main antagonists of the central figure who is the Word made flesh. These figures, they want to know who John the Baptist is. Now, a little bit of background to the inquiry of John's identity. The background is this. John is gaining popularity. He has, he has gained for himself many followers, many disciples. He's baptizing people. He's preaching. You might imagine that these leaders of Israel feel threatened. They're supposed to be the leaders. They are supposed to be the teachers. They are supposed to be the theologians of Israel. Who is this guy? Here comes some outside competition. But John does not think so highly of himself. He acknowledges immediately to all that he is not the Christ. Rather, he exists for the glory of the Christ. He is but a voice, he says, crying in the wilderness, preparing the people for the coming of the Lord, the one to whom he points, as we see in verse 23. And then the next day, John jumps into action as a testifier of his Lord and his God. Verse 29, here John commences this ministry of witness and he begins to point and you can see it there in verse 29 with the word behold. This is John's way of pointing away from himself, pointing to another. Behold who? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as John points away from himself, he makes reference to the Old Testament as he refers to this other as the Lamb of God. A lamb, a most unfortunate animal. Lambs are prepared for one thing, for slaughter. They are slaughtered. They are roasted. They are consumed. They are sacrificed. They are offered. References first made to a sacrificial lamb in Genesis chapter 22. 
there, Isaac is quick to point out to Abraham that Abraham, his father, as they're going up Mount Moriah, Abraham has the wood and he has the fire, but Isaac asks, where is the lamb for the offering? Of course, Abraham at that time didn't have the heart to tell Isaac that he was supposed to be the offering. And then we know the role of the Passover lamb later on in redemptive history. This lamb would be sacrificed, roasted, consumed by the people of Israel in their land to bondage, even Egypt. The blood of this lamb would be placed upon the doorposts of each home. The angel of death would then come to strike the land of Egypt. And that angel of death would see the blood of the lamb smeared across the doorposts of the people of Israel, and the angel of death would pass over that home and not strike it with divine wrath. He would spare that home from destruction. The lamb's blood was shed for the sake of those Israelites. But we can't forget Isaiah 53 and the Lord's suffering servant. The Lord's suffering servant, we are told in the prophecy of Isaiah, goes to the slaughter silently. There he is crushed for our iniquities. Behold, says John, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the true Lamb, the Lamb from heaven. John tells of how the Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism, verse 32 of chapter 1, and then quickly makes the connection in verse 33 to the coming event of Pentecost. John baptizes with water, but Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in other words, is the true baptizer. He comes from heaven, and he pours out his Spirit upon his church, from heaven. Verses 35 to 51 of chapter 1 give us an account of Jesus calling his disciples. Now, what stands out here are the temporal markers. Verses 35 and 43 begin with this expression, the next day. This is a pattern that actually began going back to verse 29. These mark the days since the appearance of John the Baptist. And so this part of chapter 1 recounts the first three days of the Baptist's and the Savior's ministries. And the timing will become especially important come chapter 2. But before we get there, <clears throat> but before we get there, something needs to be noted about the end of chapter 1. And it involves the conversation between Jesus and Nathanael. You can find that in verses 47 to 51. Nathanael, he is amazed that Jesus recognizes him, that Jesus knows who he is. And then Jesus explains to Nathanael, I saw you under a fig tree. This vision that Jesus reports to Nathanael provokes Nathanael to awe. How is it that he could see me under the fig tree? And with such awe is Nathanael struck that he confesses Jesus to be the Son of God and the King of Israel, verse 49. Jesus himself is somewhat amazed that this simple thing 
of being able to see Nathaniel under the fig tree would impress him so much. And he asks Nathaniel, and I quote in verse 50, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Then Jesus basically says, guess what? You haven't seen anything yet. If you're impressed by me seeing you under a fig tree, wait till you see what is yet to come. Which brings him to say, what greater things he will see. Verse 51. Nathanael will see, quote, heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What in the world does that mean? What is it that the Son of Man, what is it that Jesus, this eternal Lagos made man, what is it that he's going to do that will manifest the ascending and descending of angels. Now, the Old Testament background here is important. It is obviously an allusion to the story of Jacob's ladder in Genesis chapter 28. In verse 12 of Genesis 28, we're told that the angels are ascending and descending upon Jacob's ladder. Now, the word ladder here is way too Home Depot-ish for me. I think that the better expression is probably Jacob's stairway, as if it were a case of stairs. Yes, a stairway to heaven. The stairway to heaven here anticipates the temple. The temple, both Solomon's and the one that is revealed to us in Ezekiel, had a stairway leading up to the entrance. And this is why Jacob aptly names the place of his vision Bethel. It is the place where the heaven temple, the heavenly house of God, makes its revelation, its manifestation, its, its, its time of appearing upon the earth. And that is precisely what we have in Jesus. Only Jesus is the true Jacob or the true Israel, the son of man who is from heaven, who is himself the manifestation of the house of God on earth, who is himself the house of God upon the earth. He is the one who is the fulfillment of all those types and shadows under the old covenant in the form of buildings made with hands, temples and tabernacles. Now, while we are here, that is to say, talking about temples, we would do well to jump ahead to chapter 2, verses 13 to 44 of John's Gospel. Because as we're talking about tabernacles, it's important for us to address the significance of the cleansing of the temple for John's Gospel. Now, we don't have time to discuss why this appears early in John, but in the Synoptic Gospels, the event of the cleansing of the temple happens at the end of their Gospels. We bring it into view here simply because Jesus explicitly draws the connection between the temple and himself in verses 19 through 21. And he says this, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, this reference 
to the temple and its identity with the body of Christ harkens back to chapter 1, verse 14, where we are told that the Word dwelt among us. In other words, the Lord is in His holy temple in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's holy house, foreshadowed by the tabernacle, by Solomon's temple, by the second temple, and by Ezekiel's vision. Now, finding its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. The true temple has arrived from heaven. In Jesus, we quite literally have heaven on earth. Now that brings us at last then to the wedding, the wedding at Cana. And notice again the time marker in verse 1 of chapter 2, on the third day. I said previous in the lesson that the time markers will become significant for us come the wedding at Cana in chapter 2, and here we are. This <clears throat> is now the sixth day, if you've been keeping track, if you've been counting the days, it is now the sixth day since the introduction of Jesus back in chapter 1, verse 29. That is the day when John tells us to behold Him as the Lamb of God. And now here, Jesus initiates his public ministry, and it is no coincidence that it occurs at a wedding. The initial two chapters of John from the beginning is drawing our attention to Genesis chapter 1, as we learned in the previous lesson. And the entire focus of John chapter 1 has been to recall to our minds that inaugural week of creation revealed in Genesis 1. And this miracle-infused wedding that Jesus attends is on the sixth day since He and John arrived on the scene. That is meant to draw our attention to the sixth day of creation, that great celebration of the first wedding between Adam and Eve. There the man and the woman are given to each other. There, together bearing the image of God, are given to one another to rule over the first creation. Now, there are several things of note that are going on here, and we have time just to name a few. First, the wedding on the sixth day invites comparison between Adam and Christ. This comparison is not the only instance in John. We'll see more about that later. That is to say, the invitation to compare Adam and Christ. We'll see that invitation occur again and again throughout the Gospel of John. But the new creation inaugurated by Christ has need of a new Adam, a new covenant head, one who is himself the very image of God, Hebrews 1.3, Colossians 1.15. You see, in Jesus Christ, we have the true man, the man from heaven. Second, this invites us to contemplate Christ as the bridegroom of the church. As John often does, he records words spoken which have greater meaning than the speaker who spoke them realized. For example, the master of ceremonies. Remember, he complains that the bridegroom serves his wine. 
when in fact the bridegroom didn't provide enough wine. But the true bridegroom does provide wine. Not only does he provide wine in great abundance in this passage, but he also provides wine of great quality as well. The words that the master of ceremonies intends for the earthly bridegroom are unwittingly, but correctly, spoken of Jesus. Jesus is the true bridegroom from heaven. This idea of Jesus' bridegroom is all over Scripture, of course. It's not a new or foreign idea. If we understand that Jesus is the eternal, immutable God, the second person of the Trinity, come in human flesh, it is not far-fetched for us to make the connection to the Old Testament where the Lord, Yahweh, is the bridegroom of His people, Israel. Jesus, furthermore, sees Himself as the bridegroom of His people, Matthew chapter 9, verse 25. John the Baptist himself confirms this identification later on in John chapter 3, verses 25 through 30. And Paul certainly picks up on the same theme in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and following. Third thing of note, the story of Cana brings into sharp relief John's Moses-Christ distinction. What John is doing here is comparing and contrasting Moses and Christ. The accent here, however, in the earliest pages of the gospel is upon the contrast between Moses and Jesus. So you'll remember the words of chapter 1, verse 17, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, this distinction, the law coming through Moses and grace and truth coming through Jesus Christ, is not one of a conceptual antithesis. It is not, it is not um, comparable to a Lutheran law-gospel distinction or scheme. Rather, the distinction that John is making between Moses and Christ is a redemptive historical one. The law being earthly foreshadow, Christ being the fulfillment and the substance of the law. And so the water purification jars that are referred to in the story at Cana bring into view the law's provision for cleansing. Everything had to be washed, otherwise it would be unclean. The tradition of the elders in Jesus' day was to wash before you eat, certainly wash before you enter the celebration of a wedding. But here, Jesus' turning purification water into wine makes a profound statement. Now, this sign of turning water into wine is, we are told, the first sign and it therefore begins that section of the Gospel of John, oftentimes referred to as the Book of Signs. And the sign he issues makes a redemptive historical statement, something about where we are in redemptive history. It denotes that Jesus is inaugurating the last days. So not only is Jesus then the man from heaven, 
but he is the final man. Not only is he the bridegroom from heaven, but he is the final bridegroom. Not only is he the true lamb from heaven, but he is the last lamb. He is the fulfillment of all the anticipation of those days that were foreshadowed and spoken about and prophesied by the prophets in their visions and in all of the eschatological glory that is found in the visions of the prophets. For the lack of food and the lack of wine in Israel under both the Old Covenant and the prophets, but also here now in the wedding at Cana, the lack of food and wine was always indicative of Israel's spiritual famine, their lack of repentance, their wallowing in their sins. But the prophets envisioned a coming day of God's grace that would redeem His people from their sins, an age characterized by great provision and abundance. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6 says this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine of rich food full of morrow, of aged wine well refined. Joel chapter 2, verse 24, The threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. You can also see prophecies that are found in Jeremiah 31, 12, Joel chapter 2, verse 19, and Joel chapter 3, verse 18. And all of these citations, all of these prophecies, all foretell of a day where there will be an abundance of wine. And that's what we see Jesus showing us here at the wedding of Cana, that the day of the overflowing of the vats has arrived in Him. Now, today says Jesus by His actions, by His miracles, by His signs. He signifies the reality of the abundance being found and established in and by Him. The abundant outpouring of God's grace in the eschaton in the last days has arrived in Jesus as the final redemptive act of God. God in Christ will finally, once and for all, save His people and redeem them from their spiritual drought and their sin-laced hunger through the blood of the Lamb. Now, in closing, just a brief word about the last three verses of chapter 2. We've already touched on the cleansing of the temple, but after that incident, we are told of Jesus' growing following. After seeing the signs that he performed, many believed. And we are immediately brought into the inner life of our Lord. We are told that Jesus did not entrust himself to these followers, which was wise because many of them, after all, would eventually disperse. And as he gets in trouble... 
they would finally abandon him. But more than that, we are told something profound about the inner life of our Lord. We are told what it is that he knows about man. We are told, verse 24, he knew all people, verse 25, and that he knew what was in man. That should not surprise us, given everything that we have said about the nature of the Lagos become flesh, as divine, unchangeable, perfect in all of his ways, that he would know and be able to discern the inner inclinations of the heart of man. He knows the inner disposition of our hearts. And he knows what is within your heart. And he knows what is in my heart. No less today than he did back then. He knows what is within. And he's not impressed. He knows we are filled with sin. And yet, despite that, despite all of that sin in our hearts, despite all of the rebellion that is there against the one who created us, the Gospel of John does not end with that bad news. We might expect that it would end there especially in light of what we are told all the way back in Genesis 6-5, before the flood, that every intention of man's thoughts are only evil continually. But instead of a flood, in the Gospel of John, instead of a justly deserved flood of God's wrath, What we are treated to here is an abundance of the wine of God's grace, which underscores for us something of the nature of this gospel and why Jesus has come. He hasn't come to lead us in the way of self-improvement. He doesn't come to make us better people. He doesn't come to spearhead a humanitarian effort or to enact cultural transformation, but he comes to save sinners. That's what the book of John is all about. The revelation of the Savior of the world. And so, the only thing that is needed for one to read and to profit from this book is that one be a sinner. And so as sinners, this book is for us. It is filled with all manner of redemptive interest. And we will see that clearly in the next chapter when we see the relationship given to us, revealed to us, between heaven and earth. There, the redemptive mission of God through Christ and His Spirit is set forth by our Savior, in all of its beauty, splendor, and glory.